0: Hello everyone, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Jenny Hamill, education reporter and producer for IdeaStream. It is December 7th and you are with a virtual City Club Forum. Last Thursday, the Ohio House passed the latest version of the Fair School Funding Plan, House Bill 305, that would transform the way Ohio schools are funded. This bill and its companion Senate Bill 376 represent years of work following the 1997 Ohio Supreme Court decision declaring the current funding model, which relies heavily on property values unconstitutional. The plan aims to keep local tax dollars in school districts by directly funding public, private and charter students where they are educated, basing 60% of a district's local funding capacity on property values but 40%, and this is important, on resident income. Now, if passed, the new plan would eventually allocate nearly $2 billion in annual state funding for schools after a six-year phase-in process would commence in 2022. While the general consensus is that this overhaul is long overdue and desperately needed, challenges do remain. Lawmakers have until the end of this year to pass both bills before the process would restart with the new General Assembly in January. And finding money in a state budget decimated obviously by the coronavirus pandemic could provide difficult. So today we're gonna break down the legislative bills and what their passes or failure would mean for the future of Ohio's public schools. Joining us are Dr. Howard Fleeter, a consultant with the Ohio Education Policy Institute, a nonprofit that conducts research and analysis on policies, proposals, and factors affecting education funding. Welcome. We also have Senator Stephanie Kunzi representing Senate District 16. She is a co-sponsor of Senate Bill 376. Welcome to you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Representative John Patterson of Ohio's House District 99, a former teacher who co-chairs the Finance Subcommittee on Primary and Secondary Education and is the primary sponsor of House Bill 305, famously known as the Cut Patterson Plan, which was first introduced in 2019. Welcome to you.
2: Great to be with you.
0: Great, great to have you. And finally, we have Representative Philip Robinson, Jr. of Ohio House District 6. He serves on both the primary and secondary education committee and the joint oversight education committee. And he was elected Democratic Caucus Chair for the 134th General Assembly, Assembly, which begins next year. So as with every City Club Forum, you could participate with your questions. Either text them to 330 541 5794, that is four one five seven nine four. 541 5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. We'll try to work them in. So, with that, we will begin. Representative Patterson, uh, you are one of the principal drivers of these major reforms to school funding. I'd like to know you know, this is something that obviously we know the Ohio Supreme Court has deemed unconstitutional four times. So with the current school funding model, what does this inequity look like from district to district? And how does the way we fund Ohio schools ultimately affect the poorer students and often the students of color?
2: Well, you have about four hours. We can really dive into that. (laughs) (laughs) But let me give you a brief overview. Uh, And Howard can can really add some depth to this. There were three holdings in the DeRolf decision that are important for us to remember. First of all, uh, that we had not done enough to uh, help our students uh, in terms of the physical plants. We had school buildings that were in disarray, school buildings that really needed to be replaced. In all fairness to uh, our forebears in the legislature and the Ohio School Facilities Commission, we have begun to address those inequities. But beyond that, there are two other holdings that are addressed in the fair school funding formula. Um, like anything else, if we were to buy a car, if we were to buy a house, if you're going to do anything, you'd want to know what the base cost would be. And this bill does just that. We've worked on this for over three years, three years formerly, but uh, Representative now Speaker Cupp and I, uh, even longer than that, And so what has happened, A painstakingly analysis of all the determinants for a child's education has been laid out. We know exactly what it costs throughout the state for a typical student in a typical town to be educated. Pupil teacher ratios, school security, librarians, support staff, uh, the the maintenance of the building, the building itself, uh, like the principal costs, superintendent, uh, EMIS coordinators for the district, everything's been taken into consideration for the base cost. And then, Jenny, on top of that, we are, we are uh, they're called add-ons or in our lexicon, categoricals. This would be like special education, economically disadvantaged, uh, gifted education. That's all stacked on to the base cost. So by determining the base cost, we're in a very, if you think of this as a three-legged stool, One of those legs is the base cost. And because we've been able to figure that out, it gives us a a place from which to start. Now, the second area of our concern is, of course, the state and local share. And uh, we have, in the DeRolf case, uh, been deemed to uh, rely, have an over-reliance on property tax or property valuation, I should say, as a measure of of districts' ability to generate its own uh, source of of income for uh, school levies. And keep in mind, constitutionally, this is a shared partnership between the state and the local, and that's not going away. But the problem is there are districts that can be property wealthy and income poor. Mm -hmm. So what was decided in this particular funding model that we would blend property valuation with income wealth to determine a district, what is called local capacity. What is their ability to raise revenue? And currently the districts and the state share index are all interlocked. So, and it it compares one against the other. So if something happens Mm -hmm. to uh, a a district that it becomes more wealthy, other districts look to be less wealthy. And they're they're with power plants, a closing, and, and we had a situation a few years ago, Manchester Local down in the High River, two power plants were closing. They would have to pass a levy of 130 mils to make up for that difference. So uh, those sorts of things enter into this. And then with the current agricultural usage valuation issue from a couple years ago, and that's, a, that's a, especially for our rural districts, uh, that played havoc with the capacity. So In this particular formula, not only do we take the property valuation, but in the income component of it, there are two equal components, if you will. One is the average of the uh, three-year average of the district's uh, FAGI on income taxes, and we would take the lowest figure of that. And the the other half of that income uh, wealth is the, uh, the median of the districts FAGI for the most recent tax year available. And that helps to flatten the curve uh, in some of these districts where there may be uh, somebody wins the lottery, a few families uh, sell off business uh, or other factors. What we want to do is make this stable. And the the beauty of this is it's predictable what a local share ought to be. So if you know what it costs, the base cost, and you know what the local share ought to be, then the state share uh, is factored into that equation and you're good to go.
0: All right. <laughs> so, Howard, I, my question for you, I mean, what is, oh, you know, in addition to uh, what Representative Patterson was just telling us, but there, I, I find that, you know, I've done some reporting on kind of the, uh, the flaw of, of funding primarily through property values, especially when you take into context history and and and, and regional devaluations um, and, and the fact that, you know, certain rural areas or, you know, inner ring um, districts just do not have, again, both the property values and then for many, uh, the economic prosperity as a, a richer district.
3: Right. So I'll... I'll um I think I'm going to back up a little bit before Representative Patterson started with his um, excellent summation of what the plan does and just explain to people how Ohio funds schools. Right. So what we do is we rely on a combination of state and local revenues and almost all the local revenues come from property taxes. And we've got over 600 school districts in the state. And the good thing about using a system that starts with local property taxes is that it's good for local control. This is something if you've lived in Ohio for more than a few minutes, you've probably heard the words local control. That's something that's very important to us, right? We give local jurisdictions, whether they're schools or libraries or townships, um, lots of latitude about how much revenue they're gonna raise. Um, We vote a lot at the local level. Every state with the exception of Hawaii funds their schools this way. Hawaii has a state funded system Okay, but everybody else starts with property taxes and then supplements it with state aid. So the good thing about property taxes is it's good for local control. And it's also property taxes are stable. Right. Property values tend to go up, not down. Though, Jenny, as you said in your question, that's not always the case. And that's caused some problems lately. But it's a good start for small units of government like schools. Having stability at the local level is really important. So there are good reasons why we have property values as the starting point for our our um, you know K twelve funding system, okay. But the problem with it, as Representative Patterson touched on, is there are substantial disparities between wealthy and poor districts in this state, okay. And we have um, we have poor urban areas. We have poor rural areas. We have rural areas that are doing okay. We have um, mid-sized cities. We have, you know, there was the, there was a um, video that was done back around the time of the DeWolf decision called Children in America's Schools, and they talked about all the different problems. We have just about an example of just about every problem that you can have in education funding in this state because of how diverse a state Ohio is. And so the disparities that we have and that the state aid formula has to overcome are very significant. So the DeRolf ruling that Representative Patterson referred to, the adequacy part of it said that the state formula, that the numbers in the state formula need to reflect the cost of educating different kinds of students. And what Representative Patterson called the base cost, that was the starting point. When I first started doing this in 1990, that was $2,530. In FY19, that was $6,020. It's gone up a lot, but the most important thing is that that number has to be based on some attempt at figuring out what does it cost to educate a typical kid in a typical place. And at the time of the DeRolf decision, there were no cost, uh, you know, there was no cost methodology at all. And the legislature um, would simply say, we're going to fund, you know, we're going to put two and a half billion dollars into K-12 education. And then they work backwards through the formula and say that works out to X dollars per pupil. And so some people might say, well, isn't that what we elect our legislature to do? My colleagues are three, you know, elected officials on this panel right now. Isn't that your job? Yes, it is. But in the con, the thing that makes education different in Ohio and every other state is that education is mentioned in some way or another in every state's constitution. And in Ohio, the, the, the paragraph that describes it makes a reference to the thorough and proficient um, system of common schools, okay? And we have now, you know, that language was written in the 1800s, right? What does that mean now in 2020? You know, the, the common interpretation is that it means that the funding between the state and local part components have to be adequate for educating a typical kid and also students with additional needs, okay? And then the second part of, you know, a thorough and efficient system of common school is the equity issue, overcoming the disparities between wealthy places and poor places. And that to me, the language in the DeRolfe decision about the over-reliance on the local property tax, in the context of that ruling, that to me meant that, you know, a wealthy place can do a lot more for its kids with a given millage rate, than can a less wealthy place, and so, to me, in the you know the almost 30 years I've been working on this issue, the dual challenge for the state is to come up with a system that is both adequate and equitable, so that every kid in you know every kid, um, gets you know gets an adequate education. Why are you know, why is education singled out in a, in states' constitutions as opposed to other types of things that governments provide? I think the answer to that question is very intuitive, right, that everybody understands that education is the starting point for opportunity, okay, and so we have the responsibility to do that. So, you know, the challenge, you know, every face, every state struggles with this challenge, right, and the issue lately, you know, in the aftermath of the DeRolf decision, we went through depending on how you count, three or four different methods of um, figuring out adequacy. The last time we had a, a funding formula that was based on any of those methods was in 2011, though. So for the last 10 years, we have not, um, you know, we, you know, by by 2019, there, there weren't any numbers in the formula that were current reflections of the cost of any of educating any different types of kids. The 6,020 that I mentioned, we just, you know, through a variety of things, the recession in 2008 and 2009 had a lot to do with it. A change in gubernatorial administrations had a lot to do with it. We lost the thread of figuring out the adequacy issue. And so we kind of need, you know, we're almost back at square one where we were in 1997 when the first DeRolf decision came out. And then the equity part of it, you know, the way, you know, Representative Patterson described it, That's the state and local share. So the the three pieces of that stool are the base cost for the typical cost of educating the typical student, the add-ons for the students with different needs, and that also includes transportation because that differs across districts. And then the third part is figuring out how to fairly apportion that cost between the state and the localities in each district. So when you have property value, when you have power plants closing, when you have rural, edu- you know, when you have rural property values spiking and then going down suddenly, when you have um, places that in you know are very slow to recover from the recession, which I know is true in the Cleveland area, when property values cratered, a lot of places took years and years to the property values recovered, you know. So we we lost the thread of the formula, and we did it at a time when property values, the bedrock of the formula at the local level. We're changing in ways that we were not used to. So, you know, if anyone out there is wondering how come, you know, these our legislature hasn't fixed it, this is a hard problem. And it's been harder lately than normal. But we finally have something in front of it, which I think checks the boxes we need to check.
0: Well, Senator Kunze, and thank you, Howard, for that that response. Um, Senator Kunze, I mean, what is your perspective on on why this is finally happening now? These major transformative reforms, you know, uh, answering, you know, this this uh, question of constitutionality by the Ohio Supreme Court over decades, um, deemed unconstitutional, unconstitutional four times, and yet we're in the middle of a pandemic, but it does seem like the forces uh, are converging to to make movement finally in a place um, in an on an issue that's been long needed.
1: Well, I, I want to go back um, a little bit just to say thank you to Representative Patterson. I served on a K-12 subcommittee for the House Finance uh, Committee in 2015 with both himself and it was chaired by uh, then Representative, now Speaker Cup. And we listened to hours of testimony um, from all across Ohio on all of the issues basically that, that Rep. Patterson and that Howard Fleeter just really nicely um, kind of laid out the the number of districts over 600 districts in the state um, the different the vast differences between uh, not just the topography of Ohio um, that provides challenges but also again to the point about rural districts versus urban and suburban um, there are just a lot of different challenges uh, that that different districts face and then you layer in the um the opportunity for home rule and for the property tax value to play into it uh we just we just realized uh listening to the testimony that um the formula that we have obviously is not working, it's unconstitutional, and there really needed to be a, a way to go back and make it much more transparent at what is the base cost to educate children um, here in the state. And so I want to give a lot of credit where credit is due um, to Representative Patterson and Cup, who for over five years now have been uh, working with with Howard and others, um, so many interested party groups and stakeholders across um, the state uh, formed working groups and really delved into these issues. Um, one of the things that we talked about uh, during that committee process in 2015 was that, you know, we get a state budget in the, as a house member um, early February from the governor. And, you know, then we have a few months to work on that budget. We send it over to the Senate the Senate has about six weeks, um, sends it back to the House. And that process in that six months is just not enough time to really delve into the kinds of challenges that we were facing here in Ohio um, as to what would be the best way to be transparent in the funding and also uh, find equity um, amongst uh, the different school districts so that we were ensuring that each child was getting off on the right foot, um, getting a, a healthy start um, from a funding standpoint. I will say, you know, just a couple anecdotal things that I still remember uh, from that committee meeting, we had rural districts that came in and said, you know, our problem is not just about broadband or access to technology, the actual iPads or computers and this, you know, the hardware. Uh, We are having, you know, challenges with um, some of our school buildings not even having enough electrical outlets to charge and to plug in um, for this kind of new uh, way of learning. Um, I think we've heard from, you know, we'll talk probably a little bit about the busing issues, but Uh, challenges depending on um, how far, how long the routes are for getting kids to school. Uh, We have challenges. We've just heard in committee testimony in the Senate um, last week about some of the um, challenges, even some of the urban school districts face with uh, being a a school, you know, resides on a very busy street. And so not being able to get kids to be able to walk across the street, they need to be bused. So there are just so many different layers to um, where we come up with uh, finding what it costs. But I think that the uh, the brilliance in this plan is that we started with the child first and what is best and equitable for all children in Ohio.
0: So the, the House bill has passed, Senator. I'm just wondering w- w- why there is, you know, an uh, uh, issue being brought up with whether the Senate might be able to get their version of the bill passed before the end of the session. So, what kind of work are you and your colleagues doing, and what are your expectations?
1: You know, it's a it's a great question. I think um, it's probably there are probably several different answers. There's 17 if you include the joint sponsors. Um, there's 17 sponsors of the bill in the Senate. So, I think there's definitely um, will to um, to acknowledge that this is the right path. I think Senator or Representative Patterson is um, very often called it a blueprint. And I think that's exactly, um, you know, what it is. It's it's a path forward. Um, I think some of the uh, questions from the Senate committee um, are on the actual costs. I think there are some discrepancies, maybe maybe not even discrepancies, but just some um, questions what, around what is the actual uh, funding amount going to be to fund the blueprint. And so I think um, again to my kind of my earlier comments about just the timeframes of the way the General Assembly works. Um, the Senate getting the bill later, I think has probably um, been more of a challenge, uh, but I think that with 17 sponsors on the bill, uh, there is a strong commitment to ensuring that we uh, do something um, at some point to to stop the unconstitutional funding of schools and to really, um, I think I don't I haven't seen I've not been around as long as uh, Howard Fleeter has working on this or even Rep. Patterson. And but I don't know that there is um, really a more thoughtful or uh, better plan that's been presented. So I'm just really grateful for the work of the House of Representatives on this issue and continue to to push for it in the Senate.
0: Representative Robinson, we finally get to you. You, you did vote uh, to pass House Bill 305. So one important aspect from my readings of, of comments you've made before, um, you know, was that the uh, the allocation of the charter and private school voucher funding coming from the districts uh, is problematic. And so I'd love to hear your rationale um, and concerns about this.
4: Sure, thank you, uh, Jenny, and um, again, thank you for having me here with uh, my esteemed colleagues. Uh, for me, uh, getting elected to office, one of the first things, kind of my origin story, uh, why partly why I ran was uh, I live in Solon, my wife and I are two children, and finding out that even one of our, the top school districts in the, the state uh, having to have a levy um, and having to deal with the loss of um, tangible per- uh, pro- personal property tax and issues that happened around there. I think really touched on what uh, Howard mentioned earlier where, about. Uh, adequate and equitable education. How do you balance getting both of those done? And I can't think of an area that's more important in making sure that um, the equality around the funding aspect and making sure that we're not pitting public schools versus private schools. In this 133rd uh, General Assembly, uh, we faced one of those issues when it came to charter schools and vouchers and how do you fund those schools adequately, but not at the expense of our traditional public schools, um, which is part of our responsibility in the state constitution. Um, and so uh, we ended up having a situation in which we were faced with potentially Exploding the list from uh, a little bit over 500 schools uh, that were uh, seeing some of their revenue go away uh, to uh, charter to vouchers uh, for uh, private schools to almost 1200 schools, including, as I mentioned earlier, schools, such as Solon and Hudson of and Broadview Heights and many others. Uh, what's exciting about House Bill 305 is that it for the first time says, the fairest way to do this is not to pit parties against each other, but to figure out a way that in an adequate and also equitable way, um, that all parties can find a way to fund um, uh, the different educational opportunities for students across the state of Ohio. Um, and so uh, House Bill 305 creates a framework which would untangle um, those two items being funded by traditional public schools to having their own line item in the budget. And I can tell you after serving on a, uh, two conference committees around this issue, um, hearing almost 50 hours of testimony and 300 plus witnesses, people are passionate but they don't like A, being pitted against each other. And two, everyone just wants to have a fair shot of being able to educate their child in the best way they see fit. So House Bill 305 creates a framework for making that happen, and I also think it creates an opportunity uh, for uh, more revenue to be invested by the school district at the local level in uh, early childhood, uh, whether you think about kindergarten or preschool, different things of that nature. Um, And so in both those instances, I think it creates an opportunity uh, for fairness across the board without pitting uh, communities and also school districts against each other, and that wouldn't happen um, unless we have something like House Bill 305, and I can't think of a more important. Uh, Bill and I, and I too just want to echo thanking Representative Patterson and now Speaker Cup uh, for this uh, piece of legislation. I think all ninety-nine of us in the House, and I'm sure the same thing with all thirty-three state senators, have heard one of the biggest issues of school funding when you campaign for office and talk to people. And so it's really important of making sure that we have an opportunity to make this
3: happen. That's right. That's Representative
0: Patterson, uh, we Jerry,
3: all know. Yeah. So. Figuring out how to do. It. Can I add a comment on just a voucher? I, do, up on that, I do. So Again, for people out there who are watching this who don't understand the 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 nuts and bolts of how our formula works, that the way that we fund community schools, which other states call charter schools, um, and vouchers, um, which we call scholarships, right? The the way that we do this is also not only do we call them different things, but we fund them differently. And mm-hmm. most states, the state directly funds community schools and voucher programs and so we have one voucher program, which is directly funded. We have the Cleveland voucher program, which is partly directly funded by the state and partly runs through the formula. But the other three voucher programs we have and our community school program, they work by a deduction at the bottom of the school funding form for every single school district. So we add the students into the count, and then we subtract money at the bottom. And there's only, I I looked at this a couple years ago, there's only two or three states that do something similar to us, and nobody does it to the extent that we do. And I've never gotten, this has been this way since the beginning. I've never gotten a clear answer about why we decided to go down this road, but it has created, you know, for community schools, it's created a lot of animosity because it's, you know, that there's mistrust between the school district and the community school about where kids live and how many kids are really there. And it matters what district the kids live in. And, Um, It also results in there being a local share of funding that goes towards these programs. And so, you know, I did some math on this for community schools a few years ago. The cost is about $900 million for over 100,000 community school students. About 30% of that cost was coming from local revenues. Okay, Something similar happens with the voucher programs as well. And the voucher programs, you know, both of the the deduction method mechanism has been particularly hard on local school districts the last two years when our formula has been frozen, because if you add in new students, you're not changing. Normally they would get added to the count and you'd get some state aid and then you'd lose the deduction amount, which is more than the state aid. But this, for the last two years, it's been all local funding for all new students. So the explosion in um, ed choice vouchers that um, Representative Robinson talked about is, you know, happened in the last two years, all of that's been coming from local money. And I grew up in Cleveland Heights and they've been one of the districts most affected by this. They've gone from about, um, under 900 students in, um, at choice students in 2019 to almost, I think, 1,800 students this year and all those additional numbers of students have been paid for basically with local revenues because the deduction is increased while the state aid has been frozen. So they've lost the state aid. So the money's got to come from somewhere. So this is, again, this is in the state aid formula. Issues. A lot of things Ohio struggled with are the same in other states. This is a problem which is fairly unique to us, and that House Bill 305 and Senate Bill 376, if it gets passed, would address this issue and would end up with the state paying for vouchers in community schools, which is the way most every other state does it.
0: Yeah, and certainly, Howard, I've done a lot of coverage on Cleveland Heights University High School District. I've spoken with Superintendent Liz Kirby, and she has essentially been crying from the mountaintops since she started in this position that, you know, the onus of these private school vouchers and funding coming from the local district that is struggling, it's politically fraught to get a levy pass. I also live in in C H U H. Um and, and and it's a fraught issue. There's a lot of people who say this is the most taxed area in the district. And why is the onus on us to, you know, prop up these schools? And yet, you know, you've got district officials saying the you know they're bleeding us dry and we just do not have the money to properly Fund our schools. Just to add on that, you know, I've done a lot of interviews as well with uh, public school uh, advocates and public education advocates who say, How do you attend on building uh, more sound schools that better educate students when you, you know, when you consistently rob them of the resources that they need? Um, so it's obviously, you know, that aspect of the reforms is, is a huge part of this. So representative Patterson, you know, I ask of you, was that a major component, um, that was driving you like seeing districts that were start struggling with voucher and, 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 charter school funding, um, from these districts?
2: Yes, Jenny, it was. And if you think of the title of this formula, what's the first word? Fair. Fair. <laughs> We want to be fair to everybody. And I'll give you an example, speaking of uh, University Heights. I had a conversation and he testified with the mayor, uh, Michael Dylan Brennan. And uh, he was telling me that in that district, because there is such a draw with all the uh, educational opportunities for people, uh, the folks from outside the state of Ohio move there for their positions never having, let their kids don't set foot in that school. And then they take advantage of the voucher uh, program and, and make no mistake, we all support choice that parents understand what's best for their kids. Mm-hmm. But by golly, if we're gonna have choice, then we better fund it too, otherwise it's not fair. And that's what this does. And yes, it adds to the, the, the price tag, but the price tag has been hidden and been born by our local districts all these years, and that's not fair.
0: So let me ask you, I mean, uh, the, the $2 billion um, kind of price tag uh, over many years, but you know there is concern that, especially with um, the economy being so hard hit by the pandemic that kind of generating those types of funds is not realistic. Um, what say you to that, and, and and the ability of the state to to find and allocate those funds to schools? Because it would be a huge, a two billion dollar boon on top of what we currently have for schools would be a big boon. Uh, and that is a,
2: Jenny, that's a fair question. But let's go back for. And Howard, correct me if I'm wrong. For the last three years, we've been stuck on sixty twenty as the base cost for educating a student. Before definitely. that, for a year or two, it was sixty ten. And then before that, it was 6,000. And this is probably over a five, six year period. Is that correct, Howard?
3: Right. Yeah. It was six. I have to think for a second. So it was 6,000 in FY18. It was six in FY17, it was 6,000. In FY18, it was 6,010. In FY19, it was 6,020. And it's been frozen. At that level since then. And so, yeah, so over a five year period of time from, you know, if you count FY17 through 21, that's five school years, the the change has only been $20 per pupil, which is essentially, you know, the same.
2: And and that's my point, Jenny, to begin with, we have to understand we've been underfunding for half a decade here without any idea what the base cost really was. So it's going to take money to catch up where we ought to be. Now, let us let me add more to the intrigue. The typical increase in the state budget over the last nine years for education, on the average, has been $250 million, roughly. And if you were to project that out and add a little bit more money in from uh, various sources, and, and quite frankly, uh, we've advocated perhaps taking a little bit of the rainy day fund that was moving in the right direction before the pandemic. Uh, it could be done. The problem is the pandemic hit. So it's important for everybody to understand this is intent language. It does not bind the, hand, the, the, the hands of those who are coming back like uh, Rep. Robinson and Senator Kunzi. They're going to have to wrestle with the difficult issues of really how much money we have and and where should it go. But we've done the heavy lift up front to determine what the cost is. We've done the what question, they have to wrestle with the how question. How are we gonna pay for it? Now, the question is this though, if we don't address this now and we continue to muddle along over a period of time, the cost gets even greater. And how many more kids are we gonna leave behind and how many more children will not be able to reach their full potential because we've cut to the bone programs that were enrichment for them, things like home economics, what we used to call home ec, consumer science now, in the rural district, vocational agriculture, some of the enrichment programs, the extracurriculars, <clears throat> the local districts have been forced to cut that. And quite frankly, those programs allow some kids to be able to match their gifts with their calling so that ultimately they can match their passion in life with their purpose. We've denied them that opportunity by not funding this correctly. We have to see education as an investment in our future. People will move, especially now, and this forum uh, reflects that, you can move anywhere in the United States and work virtually. So where, as a parent, if you're, you're going to uh, raise children, you're going to look on the map, well, where are the best schools? because I can work from anywhere. What's the quality of life? If Ohio's gonna move forward, we have to provide a quality education, but that comes at a cost and we have to embrace that and make a determination to move forward and not cower from those tough decisions that are moving ahead of us. Sorry, I get a little passion, but as a 29- I love it. I need this in
0: 2020. We should follow your passion.
2: <laughs> I care about my kids. Yep. I care about my kids and their kids and where we want to be. You know, when I look back in and in, in walk into the Supreme Court, former Supreme Court building, the Senate chamber now, Senator Kunzi, that was built in the early uh, 1900s when Ohio was, was moving ahead and we had optimism and hope and, and we produced eight presidents. Well, where is that optimism now? We have to see the future, embrace it, and move ahead. And the key component is educating our kids. And I'll, I'll get off my evangelistic uh, uh, m- m- platform here, thank you. <laughs>
0: well, thank you. Okay, we are in some um, audience questions. So um, I'm gonna do it just by um, order here. So assuming this goes through before the session ends, what, should, what are the next steps and what should local districts be looking and listening for? I uh, will pose that question to you. Uh, Representative Robinson. I think you're muted.
4: Sorry, you would think you would think after doing a million Zooms, you get the hang of this, my apologies. Uh, so um, uh, assuming that it does pass the Senate, I think the ne- the, the, big, the big piece next step, which I think represented the past and laid out uh, perfectly is that then we have to figure out the how, how to be able to invest in our schools with this framework. Um, a couple of things will come to mind when we think about that. Uh, one, it, it's, some people may not know, uh, we roughly invest about 28% of the current uh, general operating funds for the state to education. Um, I can't think of a more important line item to increase. And I just want to piggyback off of something that Representative Patterson just mentioned. Uh, the most important decision a family will make um, when they decide where to move to um, is the school. Um, and, and when you all these things tie together, the school, the report card, they end up not only having an economic impact on the community and where people move and call home, but where businesses decide to move. Um, and ultimately, they decide to come to the state of Ohio. The next steps are going to be being very active with your school board members, being active at the community level, because while the, the formula for the base cost and other things are, are set up in a framework, it's not prescriptive, which means that local control means schools will have a chance to determine with those revenues, um, how do you best invest in educating the child, which is, of course, one of the values of HB 305, which is ensuring that all children have um, access to a quality education. So I would say on the advocacy front, it's going to, um, as Senator Kunze mentioned, we start the budget process here in February, uh, starting getting involved there. Um, for school districts, it will mean a little bit of a change as opposed to writing a five-year budget plan, knowing that you really only have two years funded, actually being able to Uh, Take some of the unpredictability out of the equation when you're determining how much you're going to fund for your schools and then for the state level for us to figure out what that means for us when we're investing in those those areas. So I think it's going to be enough work for uh, parents and teachers to be advocates at the state level, but also at the local level. And it's going to mean for the state, uh, one of the first things we're going to have to do and one of our prior top priorities for the 134th General Assembly is figuring out how do we adequately fund uh, this new formula model.
0: The next question I will uh, direct to Senator Kunze only because the following question I want specifically for Dr. Flater. Um, What incentive is there for districts like Cleveland Heights to not overspend? So I think for me, what this question also speaks to is, you know, concern from taxpayers, wanting accountability from districts. And when you have the onus of these levies and and, 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 and the funding of schools on the backs of a local property tax, local property owners, you know, there is that question of, is my money being well spent and how can I get assurances on that? So again, the question is, what incentive is there for districts like Cleveland Heights to not overspend?
1: Well, I think the beauty of this formula is that we're getting to the base cost of what it takes to educate a child, and then that kind of piggybacks on what uh, Howard was talking about earlier with the um, with the local control and the home rule that Ohio um, is is really you know one of our our cornerstones of our state. And so I think um, to, to Rep. Robinson's point as well, having that advocacy and having that local. Um, Uh, having parents um, and and staff members and teachers, uh, people from local districts, really have the connection with their local school board to say, these are the things that are important to us. This is what, uh, where our values are in our uh, school district. And this is what we want to fund. Um, You know, the onus is on them to pass the local levy, but having the actual transparency to say, this is the base cost. This is what the state is going to fund. Um, really I think gives some more accountability even in those local decisions because you, you'll be able to look across I'm a former um, local or I'm a former public school employee, I'm a former elementary school secretary and you know, you see in even in different districts different school buildings, um, having different needs. And so I think really uh, drilling down um, in your own community to what's important and being able to say, well, we're not going to pass this levy, or we are, uh, based on those shared values is is where the accountability piece is built in, especially again with the transparency. Of the and and of- Howard,
0: uh, uh, a question is, please discuss HB 920 and how it forces districts to constantly go to community members for school levies. Will these bills, meaning HB House Bill 305 and Senate Bill 376 decrease the need for
3: levies. All right, I may have to hunt down the person that fed that question. Um,
4: So
3: I was hoping not to talk about this, but I was actually gonna say something about it anyway to just follow up on um, Senator Kunze's answer to the question about accountability, right? That I said earlier that, you know, we vote a lot on local levies. And so since 1984, we've had almost 9,800 Operate school operating levies in Ohio, which is an average of 264 levies a year. And that is, I struggle to find data from other states, but I have not found a state that would have had one-tenth as many levies over that period of time than we have. We literally vote 10 more times than anybody else. And if you ask superintendents that come to Ohio from somewhere else and wonder why they're on the ballot every two, three, or four years, it's kind of a shock to them. And so, you know, I would say two things. One, you know, the question about accountability, the fact that we vote all the time, that is more accountability at the local level, arguably, than there are in other states because districts like Cleveland Heights and Shaker Heights and Solon and other, you know, districts and, you know, the districts that are on the ballot all the time, they have to. You have to be accountable every two, three, four years to go before your voters and say, this is, you know, we're asking you for this amount of money. This is what we're going to do with it. This is why we need it. That's a level of accountability that, you know, we have in Ohio that you don't have in other states. Why do we do this? The answer to that question is House Bill 920. And House Bill 920 is a piece of legislation that was passed in 1976. I believe it was introduced by George Voinovich when he was a state legislator. Um, and what it does, it was introduced in the mid-1970s at it, you know, at a time when house values were going up at a very rapid rate, and there were concerns that homeowners, particularly older homeowners, you know, couldn't stay in their homes because they couldn't pay the taxes. And so what House Bill 920 does is that you know, you pass a levy and then the, you know, every, we reappraise property in this state every six years. And in three years in between, we do what's called a statistical update. So if you're a homeowner, your property value is going to change every three years. And what House Bill 920 does is that it says that the district, if, if property values go up 20%, over a three year period of time essentially we're going to roll the millage rates back on all the voted levies by about 20% so that you're not in nope that the district is not going to receive any more money from all the existing property as a result of reappraisal you know in an inflationary increase and so what that means is is that um, it is a protection against property you know against um, what a um what I think it was George Voinovich called this when he was running for governor, unvoted property tax increases, right? When you get reappraisal property. What it does is that, you know, I I had a debate with him, um, you know, 25 years ago, because when I was a professor at Ohio State, he came to my department and looked for somebody to do a school funding um, analysis, and House Bill 920 was part of it. And so I got to have the interchange of saying, would it have been better to allow a little bit of inflationary increase before you rolled back the the, the levies, because I said then districts wouldn't have to go on the ballot to keep doing the same thing. And his response to me was, I think it provides accountability. What it does, though, is that it puts pressure on school districts when your existing property tax base does not grow when property values go up due to reappraisal. Your only choice is to have more property in in your district. So if you're an inner ring suburb, if you're a place like Cleveland Heights or Lakewood or Rocky River, or you know the the inner ring suburbs in different parts of the state, where there's no room to grow, your only source of local revenue increase is to is to raise your is to have a levy. And so it's we we vote a lot, and that that is why and what that does is it puts even more pressure on the state aid formula in our state because you don't automatically get growth in local property taxes the way you do other places. What we do though is we do protect taxpayers. And as a footnote to this, if there's anybody out there saying, my property taxes just went up, you know, you know what Howard Fleeter's saying isn't true, it works on average, right? If, you know, if the average increase was 20%, but somebody's property went up 25%, yes, your taxes will go up. But if yours went up twenty five percent, there has to be somebody that went up less than twenty percent, their taxes will go down. We tend to not hear from those people. I think they think it's a mistake, right? But you know, on average, that's what happens. Some people's taxes will go up, but not nearly as much if we as if we did not have this law. So it's choose your poison. Would you rather have unvoted increases where, property values went up and taxes went up just due to reappraisal or would you rather have to go to the ballot and we've chosen to go to the ballot and you know and that's again where places studies have shown that the places that are better able to pass levies are those where higher income people live so back to the formula that we're using in house bill 305 that's why another reason why it's really important to add income is because income lower income people just don't have the disposable income to be able to support levies for schools and all the other local levies that we have in Ohio to the same um, level that higher income people.
0: Thank you. Representative Patterson, I have a question for you. Ohio has long provided funding for economically disadvantaged students, but my understanding is that such aid has fallen even as need has spiked. What is the history there for districts and families where the plant closed? property values fell, and the downward spiral has
4: been deep.
2: Well, we consulted, again, research nationwide with respect to the economically disadvantaged. And there were three studies primarily from which we drew our conclusions. Uh, One from a think tank in Washington, D.C., one from the state of New York, and one from the state of California. And essentially, the research says that those children who are classified as economically disadvantaged. I'd like to point out in the state of Ohio, uh, one of the methods we use to determine that is eligibility for free and reduced lunch. We have about 47% of our children who qualify for free and reduced lunch. Mm -hmm. And, And that's a large number. So currently, and this is a mini formula within the formula, we uh, have a base cost, and this is part of the add-on or the categoricals, of uh, $272 for those students. And if a district is 100% economically disadvantaged and there's a scale, then that is essentially, for ease of clarity, quadrupled. And and right now, it um, and I can give you the numbers here exactly, uh, it, it does make a difference, and that is per student, so uh, currently right now at 272 with 100% uh, uh, concentration, it equates to about $1,100 a student. But by increasing that by $150 to 422, again, 100% concentration, that gets us about 1680. That 1680 is almost 30% of the current base cost, which is sixty twenty, So this is an interim step. We know we have to do a lot more, but we don't know how much more is important for the students in the state of Ohio. So one of the other components of House Bill 305, Senate Bill 376 is to call for uh, studies that, that will help us determine what those costs are. And one of the, the uh, Hallmark studies that we're looking for is the real cost of educating the economically disadvantaged. And I think once that is in place, we'll have a better uh, roadmap going forward. But this is a transitional step. And this is where, in the original rollout of the bill, we got some pushback, and rightfully so, uh, because we hadn't done enough up front. And what is more, as new monies come in, we have committed in both bills. To fill this bucket first, before anything else, so that those kids are getting what they need for a quality education. There's a lot of work to do with respect to uh, information that is needed, and I can tell you, as uh, all the labors that have gone into this, there's still more that we don't know. What is the real cost of transportation? What is the real cost of uh, the special education uh, for our our kids? We have moved back to a, a six uh, tiered category, if you will. But but the last study that was done in the early 2000s, we have more kids with more uh, specific needs that may not be covered with what we have promoted in this formula. So we took, and quite frankly, a conservative approach with respect to the rollout, knowing that uh, some would, would balk at the price tag But quite frankly, going back to the base costs and these add-ons, they're justifiable, they're transparent, and this is the real cost of educating a student in the state of Ohio. But there is more that we have to get into, and that's why some of these studies are critically important, especially the one relating to the economically disadvantaged.
0: A lot of our audience members have been collectively asking about process. how do we convince Senator Dolan to support SB 376 and move it out of committee? Or they're asking, what is the primary obstacle to passing the Senate bill? Are there enough votes to pass it? Are there procedural barriers? Senator Kunzi, what are you <laughs>
1: Well, I will just say this. You know, I um, I have the blessed. I'm blessed to chair the infant mortality commission for the state, as well as the Senate Higher Education Committee, as well as serve on the Governor's Workforce Transformation Board. And I think what we're talking about today um, is really one piece of what uh, when when Representative uh, Patterson was um, doing such a passionate job explaining his vision for what Ohio um, is going to look like. And I think Rep. Robinson did a wonderful job touching on it as well. Like. Nothing happens in a silo. We, we have, um, you know, from pre-birth all the way to uh, finding that purpose and passion that Rep Patterson mentioned where we want um, young Ohioans to have either um, a higher education degree or a a credit or um, go into the trades, um, find their passion and their purpose and then become um, economically, you know, drivers stay in our communities. Uh, We want a rich Ohio. uh, And I mean, a richness of diversity, Mm -hmm. of thought, of education, of um, careers, of all of these things. And so I think that, you know, from a process standpoint, um, this I have the the advantage of having served on that K-12 subcommittee five years ago and listening to so much testimony on this issue. Um, from a process standpoint, you know we have term limits in Ohio. We have an ever-changing General Assembly. We have the constraints of the two-year GA where bills are introduced and if they're not done. And then you brought up, Jenny, such a great point. I didn't touch on it as much as I probably should have earlier, but on the pandemic itself, which really ate into a lot of time that we normally would be spending in committee listening mm-hmm. to testimony. And so I think we're doing the best we can um, to catch up and to really um, to do both things, to try to uh, hear from the stakeholders, we've had hearings from uh, many of the working groups, chairs who have done a great job expressing um, the challenges and then how they came about finding the solutions. So I'm going to go back a little bit and just say I have a lot of hope um, from this blueprint that there is such buy-in, I think, in the Senate that for some reason with you know, with lots of factors outside of our control, um, COVID has really shown a light on all of mm-hmm. the areas our society where we were not fully funding or fully supporting or really looking at issues siloed. And I think one of the, the, the good things that have come out of this is that we are starting to look a lot more holistically at what we do uh, for children, whether it's you know looking at the brain, brain science zero to five is critical for um, investments for young children. We saw that in the last state budget. And I'm really hopeful going forward into either the the final week of this general assembly or the the first few weeks of the next um, to funding, finding a way to fund this and to really uh, get us on a path where we're doing the best for all children, for all Ohio's children, to give them a really um, great start at a, at a long and happy, successful future. So, and I think that's, you know, what Rep Patterson and Rep Cup started out um, to begin with. And I think um, the commitment is there from our Ohio Senate uh, to do that. So whether, whether or not, um, you know, my strategies as far as uh, lobbying the Senate, you know, I, I think it's important for people to reach out to their senators and express their um, support for the bill, obviously. But I do want to say I think there's a lot of hope for a vision for the future for Ohio's children in this plan.
4: Okay. We
0: are running out of time. I just, a quick question to Representative Robinson. I know that a passion and a focus of yours is, is the state's approach to uh, Early childhood development. So, how would you like to see that really um, be put to the fore um, by legislators and as part of uh, you know these funding reforms?
4: Sure. Um, you know, first of course, passing HB three hundred five. But assuming that we're able to do that, you know, for me, two things that are really important to me are, um, and I've had discussions with superintendents in my district about um, universal uh, pre-K for all three-year-olds and four-year-olds and then also full day mm-hmm. kindergarten. Um, once, one thing that was interesting to me when I moved to Solon and looked at, I think Howard talked about this is all about the means financially of people within their district. Um, it costs $2,000 to have full day kindergarten in the city of Solon. Uh, I'm a firm believer, and I guess I'll, my turn to be an evangelist now taking the baton from Representative okay. Patterson. You shouldn't have to have financial means in order to make sure that your child is able to get um, as good of a, a start to education as humanly possible. Um, and we know that's really important even before they ever step into their first traditional classroom. Um, and so, when I think of states such as West Virginia, uh, Georgia, Colorado, Oklahoma, these are not traditional uh, blue state, uh, blue quote unquote blue states. These are states, many of them with Republican majorities, who've decided to invest in some of the things I just listed. And I would hope that the state of Ohio will be able to do that. But the first step, talking to superintendents and principals, in order to ever be able to do something like that, they need to have a more predictable equitable and adequate funding mechanism for their schools to be able to then determine how would I be able to do that with the state's help uh, to provide that type of early childhood education opportunities for all students. Mm -hmm. And I really believe that's gonna be the next step in order to catapult Ohio forward if you wanna be as competitive not only in the United States but really globally in this economy.
0: Well, thank you so much. And um, unfortunately, we've run out of time. It's been a really eye-opening and uh, educational uh, discussion for me. So I, I appreciate everyone joining us for the forum on the Fair School Funding Plan. We have been talking with Dr. Howard Fleeter, consultant with the Ohio Education Policy Institute. Senator Stephanie Kunze, representing Senate District 16, she she just had to uh, jump off a minute ago, Representative John Patterson of Ohio House District 99, the sponsor of House Bill 305, and Representative Philip Johnson, Robinson Jr. of Ohio House District 6, and the incoming Democratic caucus chair. So I'd like to thank all of you. This forum is part of the city club's education innovation series sponsored by the norton corporation foundation and PNC, with additional support from the shar and chuck Fowler family foundation we appreciate their support of the city club's education programming this forum is also the bernice kerrigan smith forum on education endowed by the members of her family in honor of her long and distinguished teaching career we appreciate their support of the city club All City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, Eaton, the George Gunn Foundation, KeyBank, Nordson, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, PNC, And the many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on the website at cityclub.org. You can join them in supporting this work when you make a contribution online or become a member at cityclub.org. And thank you so much for your uh, support. I'm Jenny Hamill, thanks for joining us today our forum is now adjourned and with that